Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Anytime I read an article about healthcare, and so should you, I automatically look for bias. It's kind of everywhere, and I've kind of been doing it my whole life. I just can't help it. But I got a great example for you on today's topic. So here's a quote from something this week that caught my eye, and you'll spot the bias very quickly, I think. So according to a report from Trillium Health, only 25.6% of Americans utilized telehealth during the pandemic meaning almost 75% of Americans did not use telehealth, yet 30% of digital health funding dollars in the first half of last year went into telehealth. And here's my impression of Joe Pesci. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, only that one in four of us use telehealth is a completely irrelevant factoid out in space, yet gobs of money pours in. So relative to what is the question, would it help you to know that utilization pre-pandemic floated for decades around or under 1%. McKinsey just issued a report. We had 150 million telehealth encounters in a 15 month period at the height of the pandemic, where seeing a doc at a clinic was maybe a little risky. Should those 150 million have sent a postcard instead or a carrier pigeon or a Dixie cup on a string? So the slant of the writer is beyond whiny. There's a bias here. And why weren't more than one in four helped is his question or her question, but It was one in 100 pre-pandemic, big fella. So the gobs of money that went into healthcare in these last seven years is up 22% on average per year from VCs and private equity. That's over seven years versus 2% versus everything else in private equity and venture capital. So 22% jump versus 2% jump. It's more than gobs. It's a giant gathering downhill snowball gobs. Well, Digital first care utilization then went from 1% to a peak of 40% during the pandemic. And then it has fallen back some for a couple of big reasons that we've talked about on a previous show. Number one, there's a thousand telehealth bills in state houses. So this is like the Denali, the Mount Everest of uncertainty. And CMS recently tightly defined much more so what it'll pay for here. So these adoption rates are a celebration, not sad news. Any dissing or downplay of this magnificent 1% to 25% trend makes me question who is threatened and who wins, who's going to put out a biased article. And so we power through these doc shortages primarily by making the provider more efficient, right? Virtual care is a great way of mastering efficiency for our white coats. So we have way less rural shortage access to care, if not at all, minimum when we have a cell phone to access our doctor or nurse. And Walmart is super excited to go around promoting and announcing that they have over 4,000 of their stores in rural areas and that they'll be moving out their clinics to those first. And they have, even though the first one opened in Athens, Georgia, which is really kind of a suburb of Atlanta, but it could be considered maybe a stretch rural. And I went to go see it and we had a show about it. 
So they are excited to eliminate that doc shortage too in rural areas. It's very exciting. Virtual direct primary care paid for by employers, however, is our topic that we talk about on this show. And it has 30 million members just from the guests on this show the last three years. And it's probably a lot more likely now that we have all the major BUCAs involved and Teladoc Health involved, and they've announced they've added 11 Fortune 100s of their Rolodex into this employer-paid virtual care. And Amazon is diving in in all 50 states too. I'm not sure they know what they want to be if they're going to talk to employers and consumers right now because they announced they had it, uh, Hilton and Precor, which is the Peloton guys, just in the last few months. So Walmart also bought and renamed MD Live so they're going virtual in all 50 states and have renamed that Walmart virtual health, but that's a consumer, not an employer offering today. Again, I want to separate going after the consumer versus going after the employer is kind of a bifurcated question here. So the rapid virtual care bump is a component of a future where everyone can win, including today's guest. Can't wait to introduce you to Sean Mira, who got there into the game early in 2009 and is currently the founder a founder and chief executive officer of HealthTap, which is a nationwide virtual primary care clinic enabled by leading consumer experience tech that he developed experience with as a founder and executive at venture-backed games platform and another social game monetization platform where he saw some nice exits. Sean advises startups as a give back through venture capital firms he knows, through Stanford where he went and at the Yale Incubator, which he co-founded. And he holds numerous honors and inventions. Now, get this in health informatics, drug delivery, genetic testing, I gotta take a breath, medical devices, and new industrial polymers, if that's not impressive enough. He earned his MBA from Stanford and Bachelor of Science with distinction in biomedical engineering and pre med from Yale. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, and you've covered so many topics I'm so excited to cover with you today, uh, so I can't wait to get into it. Oh, yeah. we This is what we live for. So do you have any comments before we get going? So let me respond with maybe a bit of my own rant. Uh, you know, you're totally right that telehealth saw an explosion of utilization through the pandemic, and you'd expect that. We were uh, quarantined and forced to stay home and feared <laughs> exposure to germy waiting rooms that out of necessity, we had to find a new way to continue getting the care for the COVID or non-COVID things that continue to afflict us. So in many ways, it was a forcing factor for us as a society to get a free sample, a taste test of what telehealth could do for us. Um, the convenience, the ease of use, and the surprise to many, how full-featured it can be. There's so much of your interaction with physicians that really is informational and doesn't really require physical presence that I think many were delighted by how much value you could just get without needing to physically show up to an office. Now, a lot of that utilization was hype and much of the peak that we saw during the pandemic has subsided back to lower levels. Uh, but I wouldn't let that worry us in any way. Um, you know, looking at telehealth utilization today is like looking at how many of us used ride sharing apps in 2010 or 2011, uh, when companies like Uber and Lyft were just new ideas of a new way of getting around. Uh, any stats you looked at then would 
be very misleading. The reality was that, you know, the second you pushed a button and you had a seamless ride from point A to point B with payment and a quality car and everything kind of figured out, there was no way you were going back to calling the yellow cab. And that is exactly where we are from uh, an analogy standpoint and the journey of virtual care and especially virtual primary care. Most consumers have not even tried it yet. And many have just had their first test through the pandemic and are probably gonna make it a permanent way uh, of doing things because why go back to the old way when it's so much kludgier? It's, um, it's funny you say that because I was nodding violently in agreement when you said I could never go back to the old way. I've done so much with my, you know, I call it, I like to call it digital first care rather than, you know, virtual primary care or even uh, telehealth, which are kind of antiquated. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And that's what's happening right now is that, look, there was this huge catalyst, which we call the pandemic to uh, try it, but that permanent consumer behavior change will come because the experience to speak with doctors is so objectively more convenient and cost efficient and time efficient that it will become the new norm. That's a great macro overview of telehealth slash virtual care slash digital care, which we'll call it digital first care. But give us your overview kind of from 10,000 feet of the health healthcare and how this all fits into the macro problems that healthcare is faced with and how digital virtual That's care right. takes we, care of it. You know, we could talk end on end about the PCP supply shortage and the necessary for technology to make them reach more patients more efficiently, the rise of healthcare costs, how we have some of the lowest life expectancies as a developed nation relative to the amount we spend per capita on healthcare. I mean, these are all stats that anyone familiar with healthcare's woes in America know deeply, but there's a few other stats that I think are worth noting. First of all, most of this country, as much as we like to admit it, doesn't have good insurance. It just doesn't. We like to pride ourselves as a developed nation with a private payer, public payer system, but it leaves many Americans, perhaps just over 50% on some sort of high deductible plan. For those of you who don't know what that means, that means there's some huge gob of money you have to spend out of pocket before any of that insurance coverage kicks in. The average deductible for an American in this country, an individual, is a little over $2,000. The average deductible for a family is $4,000. Think about your medical expenses. Short of getting into an accident, needing emergency surgery, or hitting, you know, getting hit with a really bad diagnosis, you're pretty much out of pocket for most of your primary and urgent care needs day to day. And so that means that for the average American, they're paying hundreds of dollars every time they decide to go to the doctor um, or the urgent care clinic and thousands of dollars if they show up to an ER room because they thought the first two were too expensive and waited too long. So as much as we like to think so much of America is quote unquote insured, the reality is that most are underinsured, let alone uninsured. So why is this important? Why am I saying this? Well, what it leads to is an unfortunate financial trade-off for most Americans for groceries or gas or rent or healthcare. So many uh, just don't bother seeing a primary care doctor and let things get worse and then show up to an urgent care clinic and emergency uh, room uh, when it's far too late and far more expensive. Now, I'll tell you that 
I've had the privilege of coming from a family of doctors. And I, my whole life, could just text or FaceTime my uncle, who effectively was my primary care doctor my whole life. And in this country, uh, that privilege has been only affordable by the rich and the famous who pay for things like concierge medicine to have you know, that doctor that they trust at their fingertips one button push away. Could we design a solution that makes that idea of concierge medicine, that your personal doctor at your fingertips affordable at perhaps one-tenth of the cost to have mass and broad affordability to all these Americans that don't get good insurance that, by the way, I, I forgot a totally important aspect about the macro picture here. That number of underinsured Americans is actually growing because think about it, most of our workforce now is part-time 1099 contractor. Uh, they are working for a small, medium-sized business. They are a gig economy worker. Uh, they do not get good health benefits for whoever they work for. And that's an increasingly important issue for many employers. But what that leaves is a growing segment of our labor force that can't rely on their employer to cover their medical expenses. Well, let me jump in, Sean. Did you know that 50% of American workers don't have $15 an hour in wages and 80% are making under 20 an hour? So we're an hourly economy. And when you have a deductible that's 1500 2000 2500 and you're you know, making 20 bucks an hour, that is 20 to 30% of your take home. It's insane. So you make hard decisions. And those hard decisions, unfortunately, often end up in being, I'm just going to forgo care. Or if I'm going to get care, it's going to be so dang expensive, it's going to come at the expense of other very critical things for my well-being and my family's well-being. So what does this all lead to? This leads to a call to action for the industry to figure out a way to make primary care accessible by making it affordable to most Americans. And the unfortunate reality is that this explosion of telehealth from this explosion of venture-backed telehealth companies are ignoring most of the country. So what that means is most of these venture-backed you know, telehealth upstarts and even some of the more established digital health telemedicine players now are so focused on B2B distribution. What does that mean? That means they, their customers are not the American individual. Their customers are large employers and large insurance companies. And they use these companies as distribution mechanisms to get their app accessible and paid for by these large enterprises that have these large populations of workers or policyholders. And like I said, more than half this country doesn't have that privilege. <laughs> they do not get, you know, I won't name specific companies, but they don't get access to Acme Telemedicine app through their employer uh, or plan. And if they do, it's probably in the fine print on the back of their insurance or benefits card. So they forget about it. And if and when they happen to come by an email from their HR team that says, hey, did you know you have access to this telehealth app? Usually you're getting that email when you don't need a doctor. And you know, guess what? A doctor visit is not something you need all the time. You only need it those times when you're sick. And uh, unfortunately, what that means is that uh, 
most people forget that they have it. So you have one half of this country that most of telehealth is not even paying attention to and making themselves affordable or accessible to, they're doing a terrible job engaging the people they are selling into. They're disintermediate, they're intermediated, I should say. They're intermediated by the employer and plan. They cannot market to that population. And they're really just pushing an urgent care call center that it's not that useful most of the time to the Americans that have access to those apps. So what you get left with is a lot of vanity metrics. You know, if you look at the earnings report of some of the public telehealth companies, they'll brag about 150 million Americans, 100 million Americans, 50 million Americans, large numbers of Americans have access to my app. But guess what? How many people actually downloaded and used their app? A tiny, tiny fraction. So I just bring this all full circle. It is not just early days where any measure of utilization of telehealth is not representative of what it will be. The reality is that most Americans cannot access, cannot afford, and are not marketed telehealth properly. Well, just say I'm really agreeing with you. My uh, medical assistants, when I'd go by the clinics, I would have to stick a number on their laptop, say, this is your new health care. It's free, zero copay, zero deductible, zero premium. If you're not using it, if you haven't called in your, your patient history, they don't know you're alive yet. And, in, and the best way to get started is call it in, call your kids in. It'll take no more than 10 minutes. You don't have to ever fill out another form again. You never have to go into a Medicaid clinic again with coughing, hacking people, wait half a day, lose half a day. Do you think I want you gone half a day? I'd rather you get your pink eye script and your in fact, ear infection script over the phone. They don't need to see you. You know, unless they got to do a lab test or some kind of a flu test to see what type of flu it is, but they, they really don't need to see you 85% of the time. They can do a lot. You can get a lot done over the phone and they're so, I never lost somebody once I got them into the telehealth use. Once they started making that, how simple their lives became, they were never going to leave me because they basically had free healthcare. They didn't have any cost. That's right. That's right. And the greatest driver of telehealth adoption is when you physically go to the doctor or you call up your existing doctor and he or she or their office staff tells you for that next visit or this upcoming visit, let's try to do it over the phone or by Zoom or something. You know, So the greatest marketers of telehealth are the physicians marketing the technology to their patients. Now, physician practices aren't the best marketers and uh, you know don't work with the best software and tools. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, exactly. And then so on top of that, you have to add this other macro stat. 80 million Americans don't have a doctor. One in four Americans don't have a PCP. Although when surveyed, more than half of Americans wish they had a doctor. So right along there, you have 40 million Americans in search of a primary care doctor that don't, don't have one. So that makes you think, what's keeping them from getting one? Is it convenience? Is it cost? What is it? But my point is that you have uh, people that don't have a doctor to market telehealth to. And uh, so, so many are going to struggle to figure out how to use this telehealth thing that my mom and my sister and my aunt and my uncle are bragging about their experience. And then you say, hold on a second. There are 1 billion searches for health questions on Google every day. There aren't even that many doctor visits in this country in a whole year. So you have this thing that all Americans are doing 300, 400 times more frequently than going to the doctor. So what if you could meet Americans where they are? If you could meet them online, when they first have that health question or concern, they start researching what's going on. 
What if in that moment you could present them an opportunity to choose and keep a doctor they love and connect with them? That's a great jumping off point for talking about health tap. Let's get into it now. Okay. So you don't necessarily charge a membership fee, although you can. Right now, it's $15 a month will buy you a $39 per visit cost for anything, whether it's mental health or primary care, urgent care, wellness. But it's a $49 per visit cost if you are not paying that membership fee. Is that about right? Uh, slightly. So it's $15 a month, which is the price that Americans are used to paying for streaming uh, music and movies these days. So it's a very affordable amount that we're all used to. That allows you to text. First of all, it allows you to choose and keep a doctor to become your long-term doctor. Uh, That's unusual for most virtual. It's it's highly unusual, but super important because that's the only way someone looks at you holistically and takes ownership of your health over the long run. Um, And it's the only way Americans develop trust in their physician and what they say. You know, this is not a call a random doc call center. This is Dr. Jane Smith, who's the product. And you are maintaining a relationship with Dr. Jane Smith, who probably treats you and your children and their children one day. Um, Now, this uh, subscription enables you to text with your doctor as much as you want for the little things, the follow-ups, the clarifications, the prescription refills. If and when you want to video uh, chat, uh, you can do that for $39 or your insurance copay if you happen to have insurance that would cover it. Um, The $49 you alluded to is actually the price for urgent care. So look, your doctor goes to sleep. They take time off of nights and weekends, go on vacations. If the need arises where you have a fever in the middle of the night and you're worried and need some resolution immediately, you can push a button even on HealthTap. And in all 50 states, Uh, be in front of a board-certified primary care doctor, usually within minutes, uh, if not seconds, and uh, get that instant gratification uh, and diagnose and treatment. Now, because we're coordinating medical group, um, the doctors in our urgent care clinic and primary care clinic are coordinated and, um, you know, sharing the same patient chart. Uh, We do have a walk-in price. If you choose not to subscribe, you can certainly buy a one-off visit, but HealthTap is membership-based for two very important reasons. When you become a member at $15 a month, you make healthcare utilization a less lumpy purchase for people. You know, ultimately, doctors need to get paid what they need to get paid to make, you know, the decades of education and training they went through worth it, right? So there is a a rate to, to provide this labor and time. And so, at $15 a month and $39 visits, you're essentially pricing visits for the under, underinsured at a tiny fraction of what it normally is. So think about it. If you are on high blood pressure medications and you start getting dizziness and having some symptoms, you feel like your dose might be wrong. If you don't have health tap, you have to decide, should I go see a doctor? It's probably going to cost me 150 to 200 bucks. Eh, I'll leave, live with the symptoms. But you know what's affordable for that American? Paying 15 bucks a month and when the need arises, shooting a text message or if necessary, hopping on a call that only costs $39. You're you're not going after the realtor that has no health insurance or the home health worker that has no health insurance. You're going after somebody who already has insurance to their employer, but they just can't afford it. No, I'm going after all of those people. Okay. I am 
I believe that healthcare needs to be easy and affordable regardless of your employment or insurance situation. So the models that charge 60 to 90 per member per month standard, you're not doing that. You're getting it a different way. Do you wish you could get a larger per member per month fee or do you prefer what, I mean, you've obviously structured it so you have Oh my it. God. The, 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 the number of times people in healthcare focus on profit maximization is exactly why our healthcare costs are as high as they are. So how about this? If we really want to make healthcare better, um, uh, let's put greed aside and think about impact. Uh, you know, health debt has margins baked into its business model just fine. Uh, rather than increasing my prices because I can, I'm going to focus on being affordable and accessible to as many Americans as possible. My primary goal right now is to get as many millions of Americans making us their primary care doctor versus the alternative. Let's not talk about behavior. Let's talk about your primary care white coat, your typical clinician. How many, how big is their panel typically? And I know they're covering for others when they are first available, but typically what is your ratio of doctors to members? It's an interesting question. Um, the average panel size for a primary care doctor is probably, I don't know, 1,500 to 2,000 patients for a full-time primary care doctor. Um, if you think about virtual care, where so much of the workflow is way more efficient than, um, you know, in-office workflows and clunky EMR systems, you could theoretically say that a provider is more efficient. You have automated follow-up emails and reminders that perhaps instead of being able to see 1,500 people, um, they should be able to manage a patient panel of 2,500, 3,000, 4,000, some number more. Now, the added benefit of HealthTap is not just you know, marginal efficiency. It is also the fact that we provide ultimate flexibility for doctors. And we unlock access to those doctors for patients anywhere in their state. So um, like the gig economy, which is an extremely attractive form of employment, like working from home is an extremely attractive form of employment for other professions, now doctors too can benefit from work for home or work from vacation, choose their hours part-time or full-time. It's flexible work for physicians. So it is no longer necessary that they need to show up to a physical office building five days a week to afford paying their practice overheads. Uh, you know, a pregnant doctor could decide to take maternity leave and do 10 hours a week to continue seeing patients in her off time. You know, another doctor who otherwise would have retired can say, I'm gonna move to Hawaii, but maintain my state licenses and continue seeing patients in those states. A uh, doctor in uh, a rural city, uh, sorry, rural town, no longer needs to think, should I move to an expensive city uh, just in order to have a fuller patient panel? So the way we have approached the supply side of, of this all is that if we make it flexible for doctors and uh, financially worthwhile, uh, and you make it easy for people anywhere in the country to reach them, uh, you're solving a lot of problems around the physician shortage. That is the best non-answer I've ever heard. Well, I hope I answered it. <laughs> oh, you said 2,500 approximately, but you didn't confirm that. Well, the, the reality is that it's, um, you know, there isn't one hard number, right? Uh, uh, the, the patient panel size for a physician doing 15 hours a week with me is very different than 40, uh, for, 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 uh, 40 hours a week. Well, but my yeah. point is that it's not really well known. Um, it varies doctor to doctor and it varies based on their efficiency. But I suspect that, 
I would take, yeah, I would, I would literally take your doctors and I would divide them by the number of members you have to keep it simple. I mean, I would, that, that would be a fairly an inaccurate, but at least a simple way to figure that question out. It presumes uh, full capacity. So okay. I would say today, just doing rough numbers off the top of my head, we too are about 2000 for per physician. Okay. But that I don't think right. that's the limit. Okay. I got it. All right. Well, let's move on because I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult here. So that leads to the very next question, which is, do you have a metric that tells you how happy your doctors are? Because again, people that are fresh out of medical school or even five years out of medical school, or even sometimes 35 years out of medical school, are looking at this very closely now. Um, they're talking about this show because nobody else seems to be talking about this subject. But what is your consumer experience from the doctor's perspective? Are they checking in as happy and excited to be on board and do you have a trouble finding good people to come work for you so we measure nps scores and okay. uh, we ask our doctors routinely um how do they feel about their participation on health tap and i'll tell you my co-founder and chief medical officer dr jeffrey rutledge and myself are just sometimes so enamored by the positive response we get from physicians i just quickly pulled up when you asked the question um, a couple of a couple of quotes from our doctors just this month. I'm really enjoying the primary care clinic. I love the ability to see the feedback so quickly. It truly inspires me to provide a five-star experience for every patient. Another one, thanks for what you are doing and this wealth of information that is useful and appropriate for all specialties. God bless and keep up the good work. Three, I enjoy and treasure my association with such a large and knowledgeable group of physicians, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a sense of belonging and mission and being part of the cause that physicians get from being a part of a company with a mission that is to, you know, innovate, to make healthcare more accessible. And one of the key cultural tenets of HealthTap is we've always felt that we were by doctors for doctors, right? Our doctors are our product managers. They are our product. They really call the shot in how they want the system to work for them. So you're not having trouble keeping them, I guess, is what you're implying, but the the bigger question is now that there are so many different retail and big corporate entities going after the family practitioner, internal medicine doctor, the, the NP that's specialized in a broad scope, are you having more trouble or are you having to pay more to get good people on board as you continue to grow? Um, access to physicians has been one of our uh, superpowers as a function of how we started the company, actually. Okay. Um, 12 years ago, when we founded the company, it started with a very different idea than connecting people by video and text chat to their own doctor. It started with this idea that um, Googling your health questions often leads you more worried and confused than before. What if there were a way that you could actually get trusted answers from real doctors to your questions online, on the internet, for free, anytime you had them? And we took a, a, a lesson, a, a page out of the playbooks of other products like Quora and Yahoo Answers and Stack Overflow, if you've heard of them, but they're essentially crowdsourced Q&A forms. And so we said, what if we engaged a big network of volunteer doctors to offer up their time to answer questions for strangers on the internet for free? Hmm. This is your partnership. You, uh, yeah, you, you announced this partnership last year with a larger entity that is doing exactly that. That's really smart. My point is that over the last 12 years, we've had 90,000 U.S. doctors in 147 specialties. That's about 8% of the U.S. doctor population mm -hmm. manually apply 
and be credentialed as a physician with uh, uh, in good standing uh, in order to just volunteer their time and uh, learn and teach amongst one another and consumers around this Q&A forum. What that does for us from a supply standpoint is now when we need to staff up a primary care shift or an urgent care shift, I don't need to go put up a job posting like many practices to find a physician. I have a captivated and engaged doctor group that uses my app regularly for something else entirely, answering patient questions online for free, that I just ask them to raise their hand if they need a shift in Kansas on Tuesday. Mm. And uh, I have basically a very big bench or waiting list of doctors that would love work with us. I'm so and, glad to hear that, Sean. That's really great news. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Smart. I can't wait to get to this question about your consumer experience in gaming has to have something to do with y'all's consumer experience with your members. But before we do that, let's talk about the first available doc nurse versus the people that want a member. I mean, they want their doc that they've chosen. Do you have any percentages on that? I, I know that Gen Z is just super happy to have first available because they prefer convenience over a relationship. But are you seeing any statistics in your company on the one-to-one -one versus the first available? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, being a subscription model, um, we make the most sense for people that have an ongoing need or desire to have a long-term relationship with a doctor. So if you need an antibiotic for that UTI and you're probably not going to see a doctor again for a year, uh, probably not the right fit for you. And honestly, it's not a very attractive business for most hospitals, health systems, and clinics, you know, the, the, the one-off urgent care walk-ins. Um, what we have seen demographically and psychographically of the people that are most interested in a long-term primary care relationship, it should be unsurprising. Uh, first of all, you have a group of people that have a chronic condition. They represent a significant portion of this country, but uh, you know, people with one or multiple conditions uh, have an ongoing need to see a doctor every few weeks or months. And so for them, it's nice to have continuity of care. It's nice to have a doctor that knows their prescription and medical and symptom history and can quickly provide the refill and uh, know intuitively what a symptom means because they've known you for so long. So people with chronic conditions, obviously that skews towards, you know, people starting in their 30s to 40s, 50s, 60s um, are a great fit. Then you have families, people with larger households with children because your kids are inevitably going to get sick multiple times a year. You're going to inevitably catch what they have. And it would be really nice if you had a single family doctor that cared for all of you, again, to provide that holistic family medicine. And those two are individuals that expect to need a doctor multiple times a year. Then you finally have certainly a smaller group of, let's just call them digital natives, right? Yeah, they correlate with younger folks, but these are people that are running every part of their life through some app or a subscription these days that the idea of doing that for primary care as well is just a no-brainer, regardless of their insurance, whether it's a premium or a cost saving for them, HealthTab just seems like a really good and fun and easy to use product. So is that like a 50-50 ratio or 33-33 between those three groups or what is, what is the breakout? How many actually want that one-on-one -on -one versus? Um, it's about a 50-50 ratio okay. today, but again, that's really more of a reflection of who we're marketing to and who okay. we're reaching out to, right? We want more people doing primary care because for us, that long-term relationship is the main dish and the urgent care is the side dish, not the other way around. Well, is your main dish in marketing employers or consumers? 
100% focus on consumers. And that's what makes us so different from most of the other telehealth is if we can, and this ties to your next question about kind of the background in gaming. If you can price for consumers and be really good at reaching them where they are on the internet, browsing through feeds, doing online searches, um, you can reach Americans far more effectively, a much broader market than being beholden to some employer who is going to let their HR team include some mention of you in the fine print of one of their emails or benefits portals. <laughs> good luck getting adoption that way. Um, and so what we said is we have a winning formula here. If we can figure out how to show up on your Google searches, on your uh, social media feeds, um, on other websites that you're reading and browsing, then we can reach directly each American household and build a household brand such that we start spreading by word of mouth as well. Okay, that, that can be an extensive way to find folks, but it works for you, so that's great. Once they've engaged with you, can you describe the consumer experience and how it ties into the gaming background you have? Well, a lot of my background in online social gaming was in experience in learning about funnels and living and breathing data, not in the cliche sense, but um, cohorting my people, understanding metrics like LTV and customer acquisition cost and conversion rate and all these numbers that focus in a company and you know, consumer services like gaming, like retail, like e-commerce, and building something that is very sticky, uh, very engaging, and very satisfying. Uh, that discipline is very unique to us because when you're direct to consumer, you live and die by, like you said, how expensive it is to acquire your consumers. How good of a job do you do at converting them into paying subscribers? How well do you retain them and prevent them from canceling? Because you didn't do a good enough job showing value and keeping them happy. So uh, instrumenting HealthTap with these dashboards, building a culture and an organizational focus to look at these funnels and numbers on a regular basis, um, you know, it enables us to make the direct-to-consumer model work economically. And if you have to contrast it to an organization that is B2B focused, what are they doing? They're trying to hire the best salespeople. They're looking at pipelines. They're whining and dining. Brokers and consultants, right? They're doing political well, sales but, to try yeah, to- but to, to defend them, well, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I'm in violent agreement, but I, your, your churn rate for employers is extremely low. Once they get on board, and if you were to offer to them, they're not going away. They're going to renew 99% oh, well, of the hunt. Here's the fallacy. This is what happens when your customer is not your user. So note that your customer is not your user. That's a great When yep. your customer is the benefits, cons uh, benefits head and your user is the employee, sure, the benefits person is going to renew you for another year or another three years. How many of their employees are using you? So what are you selling? You know, the fact that you quote unquote cover a large population of people or that a large portion of people actually use your app. So yes, you're right. Uh, renewals are quite easy. Revenue is more stable. But guess what? It's also harder to achieve. There's a million one telehealth company selling into a very small handful of enterprises. Uh, it's a bloodbath, uh, but that's not the point. My point is actually a different one. You're right. 
from a revenue and business standpoint, enterprises have annual or multi-year contracts that make renewals a bit less frequent and the revenue more sticky. However, would you be surprised to hear that my subscribers stick around for years at end? Oh, we see cancellation rates that show our subscribers sticking around for an average of three to five years. Okay. Well, typically the adoption curve is everything. That is the golden ring in employer sponsored. And yes, if what happens maybe the first year when they have PPO, HMO and DPC as an option, they're going to maybe a third, a third, a third, or, you know, a third and legacy, we'll call it. And then once they start talking to people at the workplace, and they say, I didn't have any copays, I didn't have any deductibles, I didn't have any premiums, got right in, red carpet, I feel like a celebrity. It starts getting around and the adoption starts inching up, not inching up, it actually starts spurting up. So it just takes a little bit of early adopters to get it, and then eventually the rest get it quickly because the other guys still have the copay, they still have the deductible, and most people don't understand a copay isn't just 10, 20 bucks, it could be an 80, 20 split on a big spend that could be bankrupting you. So the vast majority of people that had medical bankruptcy had insurance. That's right. They just didn't, have, they couldn't afford that 20% copay. That's right. That's right. That's right. See, um, there's a lot of companies in digital health that view employers and insurance companies as distribution channels to lives. Um, I view them a little differently. I see them as payment methods. So for me, a given employer plan or insurance plan is no different than your Visa or Amex or HSA card. Um, if you discover me and want to become a patient of HealthTap's primary care practice, you can put in your insurance information. <laughs> we'll probably be in network and we'll probably get reimbursed and get the copay you would have gotten anyway. And I guess the key difference is I don't rely on those institutions to remarket me to those people. I'm finding those people on my own. Is the number one reason that you do have a 20 or 30% churn is because they found an employer that has finally good insurance and low, low deductibles or, or are you losing them for other reasons? Well, so I have relatively low churn, right? So uh, I'm not losing that many folks um, given that they're sticking around for as many years as they do. What's really interesting about the data is that we ran, um, we looked at uh, our checkout experience. You know, how do people pay for the visits when they come to HealthTap? And if you play with the app, you'll see we offer people a very obvious place they can put in their insurance information right above their credit card information. And yet, less than 5% of people bothered to put in any insurance information. So wow. that's, that made us think 95% cash pay. Are we just somehow only targeting uninsured people? So we ran a survey, like, what kind of insurance do you guys have? We were shocked to hear that the significant majority of our subscribers have insurance. So then why the heck do most of our subscribers have insurance, but almost none of them put it in? Now, this is where we lead to some hypothesizing. One of the hypotheses is that it's probably not going to make a difference. My deductible is so high. Uh, why bother? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm never going to eat through it. It's not going to cover this visit. So I'm just going to let my browser autocomplete my MasterCard information and hit send, hit go. It's 39 bucks, not that much money anyway. And the second part is probably, I guess, that finding your insurance number, group ID, subscriber ID in some card in your wallet or in your home is probably inconvenient. And at 39 bucks, 
it's probably easier to just put in a credit card, which you've memorized or saved and go. So you're the primary care placeholder and mental health placeholder, and their coverage is basically they're catastrophic in their mind. Mm -hmm. That's they're take like they're going to get cancer, you're going to have a car accident, some catastrophic thing. That's what their other health insurance for. So it's a misnomer what it actually is for because they could get another product that's better than what they have. I think so when you talk about high deductibles, it's really just catastrophic insurance. That's really what it is. When, like you said, a significant portion of your income needs to be out of pocket, you might as well be uninsured. So, Sean, what do you see as the growth of consumer-based virtual primary care versus, uh, I will call employer-based? Do you see it as growing faster, about the same, less? Where, where do you see yourself in the horse race? I think to date, it has been challenging for telehealth businesses to figure out a pricing model and a marketing um, strategy that makes direct-to-consumer um, profitable and worthwhile. Um, HealthTap seems to be finding some success along that, on that, along that lane, but um, what it means is that um, the employer market is relatively saturated, and what's going on right now is kind of one competitor trying to one-up the other, either on pricing or some marginal differentiation, which then quickly gets copycatted. So I would say that there's very few contracts left up for grabs. Most of it is now swapping from one bundle telehealth solution to another direct contract solution to another contract solution. It's, it's very competitive. Um, the consumer market is wide open. It's wide open. There's very few companies other than HealthTap paying attention. Um, you have examples in other verticals. You have uh, uh, companies like 30 Madison, uh, you know, uh, uh, Roman, uh, you know, brands like NewRx, Hims, Hers, you know, they're, they're selling certain use cases like erectile dysfunction, birth control, hair loss uh, profitably and at scale, um, but they're very specialized, right? Um, sure, if you need a simple birth control prescription, there's a way to do that. Um, there's very few companies offering broad spectrum primary care in a model that works like ours. I think once it catches on that there is a way to do this, once HealthTap is a bit better known, I believe there will be a lot of copycats. And um, you know, you see a hint of that. You see what you mentioned with Walmart and some of the moves that Amazon and Walgreens and CVS will make as well. Yeah, but how about United Health? United, all, in fact, all the big bookers are all jumping into virtual primary care. But there will be a legitimization of the strategy to go to consumers directly. Now, yeah. the, the big guys have the advantage that they already have consumer reach. Mm -hmm. The little guys need to figure out a way to do it that's not so expensive, as you said. Yeah, but the scary thing about a big going with a big, if I was a United Health member and they said, hey, guess what? You can call our doctor now and they've got 50,000. So no problem with their bench either. But now I've got a copay and deductible to tend with. I don't want to contend with the payment structure. I want what you have, which is I'm paying $15 a member a month and a small fee. That's to me is uh, theirs is a scarier offering because it's quite unlimited what they can charge. It's true. And I don't think you can discount the subjective experience of uh, in-apps interface and design, customer support. There's a lot of soft things which only come from a culture and focus and a, a pool of talent that knows how to build consumer products that is going to be difficult to find in some of these larger, stodgier incumbent enterprises. 
And yeah. so there will be a lot of consumer choice made purely because, oh, my best friend told me he loved it and I tried it and now I love it and I'm just going to keep using it. It's pretty affordable anyway. Mm -hmm. What are your big challenges that keep you up at night? I'm going to imagine that uh, my guests before that are employer-sponsored space it's engagement. How do I get the folks to, to buy us once and then we're, we're good? We know we've got them for, for life. What is the kind of things that keep you and your team up at night? Um, what I'm most interested in right now is making virtual primary care as complete as possible a substitute for an in-person interaction. Mm -hmm. So you know, 60, 70, 80%, you can argue the percentage, but a majority of interactions with your PCP can be handled virtually. But there are limitations. I can't give you a flu shot. I can't tend to your wound. I can't take your blood pressure. You know, there are things I can't do. Can't do a well women exam. Can't do a vaccination. Yeah, all, all uh, right, of that. exactly. Mm -hmm. But I don't want those to be limits. So through partnership and through the advent of new um, solutions, uh, connected devices, at-home testing kits, medication delivery, mobile phlebotomy, there's an ecosystem of complementary service partners that would make our solution even more complete than it already is. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is how do we create a comprehensive experience for delivering care at home or wherever you are? Yeah, that's that's your gap. That's a wonderful thing to tackle too, because then you solve the question, well, you know, it's just virtual, it's just digital, but you solve that problem if you have partners that are bricks and mortar or can make home visits. Well, um, let, me, let me leave you with one thought. Uh, there's a funny uh, episode of the Jetsons for whoever of your listeners remembers that cartoon. I grew up watching it on Saturdays. Um, the Jetsons had this episode where, what's what's the wife's name? Joan Jetson? I've heard yeah, her name. Joan Jetson? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And her boy, no, Jane, his wife. Jane, his Jane, wife. Jane, all right. Jane, yeah. his wife. Exactly. So Jane Jetson um, is greeted in the morning by Elroy, her son, saying, oh, mom, I'm sick. I can't go to school today, even though I have a test. So she pushes a button in a wall and through the ceiling descends her doctor um, that uh, inspects Elroy's throat and says, sorry, son, you got to go to school. Um, but here's a quick medication that'll uh, make sure you're not sick so you can take your test. And he uh, pushes a button. He, after inspecting his throat through the TV, pushes a button and uh, out comes a medication through J uh, Jane's wall. And uh, it's a very futuristic and kind of funny uh, envisioning of where this is all going. But think about it. You have like same day shipping, two hour shipping of things from like, you know, Walmart and Amazon today. We're, we're not that far from having a virtual primary care doctor through health staff and through some partners getting you the med or the test instantly. I hope in my lifetime I get to meet my talking dog. That's my buddy. Wouldn't that be cool? Right name. I'll name him Astro. Oh. We already have robo vacuums like they do in the cartoons, so we're we're getting there. <laughs> I mean, look, Star Trek. If you made a long list of what they had in tech, we're about eighty percent of the way in Star Trek. And you're 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 talking to a very very uh, uh, passionate Trek. Uh, oh, well, the old <laughs> the old school, not the new school. Uh, um, old school for sure. Yeah, let's talk about how people find you, Sean, if they want to reach out for either employment or to talk about this as a consumer or. Well, it's very simple. Uh, HealthTap.com is the website. We also have iOS and Android apps on the Apple App Store and Google Play, also called HealthTap. If you're a physician, it's called HealthTap for Doctors, and you can apply to join our medical group or a doctor network if you just want to volunteer and uh, 
uh, learn and teach amongst other physicians answering questions for free. And uh, uh, we're constantly looking for new partners to uh, distribute our services to more Americans. We're looking for new capability partners, like I said, towards this vision of making us a more complete experience. So I'm always happy to connect with folks. I'll even throw out my personal information. Don't be shy to reach out to me. I'm just Sean at healthtap.com. That's my email and I'm pretty responsive. To actually use this show for specific advantage, what type of partners should be calling you? Are you talking about phlebotomists, national phlebotomists? Are you talking about national home health x-ray? I mean, mobile. If you have a large group of Americans that would benefit from a long-term relationship with the primary care doctor, call me. Because I have uh, some of the best primary care physicians in the country and others waiting, ready to serve them in a pretty great and affordable experience. So that is my priority right now. Okay. How many docs do you have, or should, I should say, how many providers do you have that are full-time or part-time today? And what do you think it's going to look like in three to five years? Um, today, we have tens of thousands in the network answering questions. We okay. have hundreds contracted in our medical group to okay. varying degrees of commitment. And in the future, I hope both of number both of those numbers are larger by an order of magnitude. <laughs> right. That's a good answer. Okay. And if you could fly a banner over America with one message for all Americans, what would that banner say? Your doctor, one tap away, healthtech.com. <laughs> nice. You, you know, I'd say 90% of the people give me a 16 airplane answer and you got a one airplane answer. You, that puts you in rare air, baby. All right. Well, um, that means I'm cost efficient, capital efficient marketer. <laughs> <laughs> You're the CEO everybody wants to invest in. Well, Amazing. thanks again, Sean. I enjoyed this and I'm glad we got to uh, make this happen. Thank you for inviting me. This was an honor, privilege, and super fun. Great. Okay. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.